this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. I'm going to be leading us through a series of messages that focus on the themes of the candles that we light around the Advent wreath. So today we lit the candle of hope, and we're going to see something about how hope comes to us through Scripture today. So in this first Sunday of Advent, as we sort of shift gears now and we start thinking about Christmas and Christmas time that's coming, hope is one of those ingredients that goes along with Christmas that we hold on to in different ways. I know for children, when, when I was young, that hope kind of always centered around some of those things that would go under the Christmas tree, right? You hope for certain presents that you get, that parents and relatives and loved ones would ask you for your Christmas list. What do you want for Christmas? What do you hope to get for Christmas? And so sometimes that hope then that we see at Christmas is, is something that is reminded to us in some of those longings or desires that we hold on to in our heart. So we hope for those things, and, and then there comes that point along when packages start arriving, wrapped up under the Christmas tree, and you wonder what's inside and hope that it's something that you would ask for. And, you know, when, when I was younger, that certain toy or a game or or you know, even now with the hobbies that I have like a hobby like cooking and being in the kitchen I always wonder is there some new kitchen gadget in there that that I hope for something like that but hope is more than just that hope is more than a longing or a desire but but hope also comes as an expression of comfort and assurance right that the hope that we see revealed in Scripture is a hope that, that leans into the promises of God. That God is faithful to keep his promises. So as God has always been faithful in the past, so we have a hope, a comfort, an assurance that God will continue to be faithful in the future. That we have a hope built upon that. And we understand what that hope means as well because we speak of that in different ways. Right? We, we, we speak of a hope for tomorrow, that there's always a hope for a new day, a hope that the dawn is coming. What we mean by that is we mean that no matter how dark the night may be, we know there will always be a morning that comes soon. And we know that because it always has in the past. There is a faithfulness, a reliability about the dawn always coming after the night. So we have a hope for a new dawn, for a new light, a hope that is built on a certainty. That's the kind of hope that we bring into this Advent season as we look forward to Christmas, a hope that brings us towards God's coming Messiah, a hope that the prophet Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 11. Remember that Isaiah writes to the people in Old Testament Israel who are being invaded and overrun by foreign armies, being carried off into exile. Their entire world is crashing down around them. And into that context, Isaiah gives words of hope for a new dawn, a new light, a new day that's coming. Today then, Isaiah 11, and I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses. Isaiah says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. A word of hope that comes from this passage. Hope that shows us something of God's coming Messiah, his salvation. I'm going to work through three sections in this passage as we follow this through. So if you're taking notes or following along, three things that we're going to be looking at here. First of all, let's consider what it means for us to have hope for a Savior. And then secondly, consider what this passage says about having hope for salvation. And then thirdly, let's think a little bit about what it means for us to make room in our hearts for this hope to be in our lives today, okay? So first of all, hope for a Savior. What does this look like? The Messiah that is revealed. That's the word that we use in the Old Testament scriptures. It's a word that literally in Hebrew means anointed one, the one who is anointed. It has a Greek equivalent in the New Testament, Christ, which also means the same thing. So whether you're looking at the Old Testament, Messiah, or the New Testament, Christ, in either way, those all refer to, they literally mean the anointed one, the one who was anointed by God. Now, we don't think of that the same way now today as they would have back then because we don't do a lot of anointing anymore. But, but the anointing in the Old Testament was an important symbol. It was a symbol that showed that God's presence, his spirit, was upon the one who was anointed. So when kings would come to be, they were anointed. The first five verses of Isaiah 11 talk about this anointed Savior, this Messiah, the one who was anointed. In fact, we, we in the church today who live past the time of Pentecost, when we in the church have already been anointed with God's Holy Spirit upon us in our hearts and in our lives, we stand then looking back at the Old Testament where the anointing of God's Spirit did not come on everyone. The anointing of God's Spirit in the Old Testament was limited to certain times and places and people. And so the kings were anointed to serve as God's 
appointed ones, that God put them in their positions. And his anointing then would be an anointing, an endowment of his Holy Spirit. Look at the way that the words of, of Isaiah 11 capture that in these opening verses, talking about how the Spirit of God is present in everything that the Messiah does, right? A spirit of wisdom and of counsel, a spirit of might and of power. Those are all words that point to anointing. The presence of God with the one who is anointed. Something that Old Testament Israel expected all of their kings would have. That God would anoint their kings. Or in other words, that God in his Holy Spirit would be present with them, with the kings. So Isaiah says, the anointed one, the Messiah, is coming. And will show the fruit, the benefits, the signs of that anointing because the Spirit of God will be evident in everything the Messiah does. And how will that show up then? It shows up with a commitment, a commitment to justice and righteousness and faithfulness. Look at the way that the words of Isaiah 11 talk about that. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or by what he hears with his ears, but instead with justice and righteousness, that he will attend to the needs of the poor and the oppressed, that he will be faithful to do that. This is the picture of the Savior, the Anointed One, the Messiah, that comes from Isaiah. That he won't be fooled by empty words. That There won't be empty shows and displays of power, but with his righteousness and his faithfulness, he will save his people. He will be the Savior that God's people long for, hope for. What does that Savior look like? How how do we see that taking place in our world today? Well, I think for these Old Testament Israelites who lived in the time of Isaiah, that was a necessary message because they saw in their own kings, they saw in all of the rulers around them examples of saviors that had no character. Right? They, they saw examples of those who were rulers or had power who did not have justice or righteousness or faithfulness. The character that goes along with God's anointed Messiah was missing in all of those other places of power in their world. So they needed that reminder, that reminder of the hope that comes with God's anointed Messiah. Maybe our world is not all that different. Maybe we too live in a world in which we look for saviors in other places. We have a variety of of saviors in our world who compete for the hope in our hearts and whatever that looks like. Maybe some of us, it would be a savior of economic prosperity, of wealth, that we look to be saved by financial security. Maybe some of us, it's it's a savior of a political party or who's in charge or who's got the power to control Maybe for some of us, it's a savior of popularity or social status, 
of being high among our peers and friends. Maybe for some, it's a savior of career or business that we find success in what we do. But when we look for those things to be the things that give us hope to save us, then we miss the true anointed Savior of God. Because that kind of hope is always going to fall short when it's not given to God and to God alone. Jesus comes then in a way that is completely unlike all other saviors of the world. Jesus comes with a character of righteousness and justice and faithfulness that none of these other things can live up to. Now then, I know how it goes in our world that that we would say, you know what, but wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I have faith. I confess Jesus as my Savior. I'm not turning my back on God. And I think the people of the Old Testament would have said the same thing, that they don't turn their back on God either. They're just allowing some other things to go alongside of God. So, so it's not like I'm saying, you know, I trust in a strong economy to save me instead of God. It, it's more that we live in a world that says, you know what, I trust in economic security along with Jesus, alongside of Jesus. You see how that works. We start making this space where all of these other hopes for saviors can find a little space to fit alongside of Jesus. When what we see from Isaiah is that Jesus is completely unlike any of these other saviors. So so when we allow for our hope to be pressed towards a savior that comes from other places than God, then it brings down the hope that we have because all of those other things in this world, all of those other institutions will fail us. They will not give us the salvation we long for. So we keep Jesus apart from that as the only anointed one of God. He is the Savior. But also, we see the salvation that comes in this passage. That with verses 6 through 9, Isaiah talks about what this salvation looks like. A hope for salvation that talks about the Messiah's new world. The new world that will come. And it's a hope that comes then in ways that point us forward. Now then, this is strange language that Isaiah is using in this passage. He's talking about things like lions who eat straw like an ox and that there are predators and prey that sit down together and do not attack one another. Children playing with poisonous snakes. How does that work? You know, I I have to admit that there's not complete agreement on biblical scholars of what this passage means or how it works. There are some that, that think that this may be a literal description of what paradise, the new world, will be like, but There are plenty of other scholars who say, you know, this this is poetic, symbolic, metaphorical language. It's describing something for us in language that's meant to symbolize. And I tend to agree with, with that interpretation because it fits with Isaiah. There's nothing else in all of Isaiah's letter that would lead us to believe that all of a sudden Isaiah's going to turn a corner and and pause for a few verses and say, let's talk about animal behavior for a minute. 
That has nothing to do with Isaiah's message. No, Isaiah is giving some poetic language here that's meant to describe something about the world that he is living in, the people that he is writing to, the people whose world is falling apart around them because they're being overrun by the corrupt and powerful people of other nations. And Isaiah gives them a picture, a poetic picture of a salvation brought by God's anointed one, of a new world, a different kind of world, a world in which God's salvation comes for those who have only known being devoured by the carnivorous abuse of corrupt leaders. You see, that, that's what this language, this imagery is meant to point us towards. That we live in a world in which there are predators who tear apart those who are weak and vulnerable. Those who come to God in meekness, looking for mercy. And Isaiah says, God's Messiah, his anointed one, brings a salvation in which you will no longer be devoured and destroyed and torn apart by those who are corrupt rulers. He takes this hope and frames it into a world that is free of violence and corruption. That he brings that to a place where perhaps we need to do a little bit of work to imagine what that would be like. I mean, the language that Isaiah puts into this passage takes a stretch of imagination. I can't picture in my head what it would be like for lions to eat straw alongside of cattle because I've never seen anything like that happen. It's a stretch of the imagination. And maybe, maybe that's what's needed as we picture what this hope for salvation looks like. That we need to imagine a little bit of what that new world could possibly be. It's a world that's not familiar to us in any way. A world in which I have to imagine what would it be like to live in a world where we don't need locks on any of our doors? What would it be to live like in a world where no one needs guns for protection? What would it be like to live in a world where there's no need for armies or bombs? There's no need for fences or walls or barriers. There's no need for prisons or jails. It's beyond our imagination. But that's the world, the new world, that God points to through these words of Isaiah. A hope for salvation, that the Messiah's new world is a world that's beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination, because it's a world that is made completely free of all violence, corruption, and abuse. What does a world like that look like? You know, I think sometimes we fall into this place of it's so far beyond our imagination that we can only imagine it as being somewhere other. That salvation for some of us is this spiritual, otherworldly, heavenly place among the clouds that cannot at all be anything like what we live in now. But that's not what the Bible points to, is it? The Bible clearly concludes in Revelation with a resurrection, recreation. 
that God's physical world will be made new again in ways that look beyond what we can imagine. But our forever world with God will not be some spiritually heaven, spiritual heavenly place. It will be a resurrection place that we will be resurrected with new bodies in a new creation and that we will live in that world, a world that is brought by the, the salvation that the Messiah brings beyond what we can imagine, but what we hope and long for, what gives us comfort and assurance because we know We know in this Advent season, we celebrate that God has been faithful to keep his promises. Yes? God is the one who has sent his Savior into the world. We remember that at Advent, that we wait for that coming of that Messiah. And we do that now in a way that looks for, that longs, that hopes for God's salvation to be made complete when his Messiah comes again. That comfort and assurance that we bring in to this time of hope as we look for that. How do we make room for that? What does that look like? That hope that comes. Well, it's, it's hope that comes along with an instruction in some ways. Hope that comes with an instruction to make room in your heart for this kind of hope to enter and to fill your life. One of the things that, that we have to do in my house, because I don't have infinite space in my house, is, is with the members of my family, when we get new things, we have to make some room. So if there's, in those presents that are under the Christmas tree, if, if there's a new shirt in one of those boxes, it means that, you know what, one or two old shirts have to go from the closet or from the dresser drawers, because there's not room for the new without taking out the old. Right? If if there's a new pair of pants that comes in one of those Christmas presents, then an old pair of pants has to make, get out of the way to make room for it. If there's a new game or a toy in there, then one or two of the older games, the older toys, have to get out of the family room shelf space to make room for the new. If it's new dishes or new cookware, then something has to get out of the kitchen cupboards to make room for the new. If it's new tools that you get, then you don't even want to see the workbench in my garage. You have to make room for the new by getting rid of some of the old. You see, the hope that God gives at Christmas is a hope that comes that way too, where where we need to think about how is it that we make room in our hearts for that hope to enter and fill us and find a place. Because the hope that we receive is a hope that is a gift from God that needs some room to be received. That we need space for that hope to fill us in some way. So what does that look like? How do we do that? How do you take the hope that comes at this time of Advent and and make some room in your heart for that hope to fill your life? Perhaps one of the things that we need to do then is is to purge the old. Get rid of the things that don't belong there anymore. 
to make room for the new. So, so whatever that is in your life, in your world, that is competing for your allegiance to hope, whatever that is, find a way to get rid of that, to kick that one out. I know maybe that seems overwhelming, so if, if you could do something, just start. Just pick one thing. Pick one thing that you would look to this week to say, I'm going to eliminate one thing in my life that is a detractor of Advent hope. One thing. One thing that competes that you look to and you know I'm looking for some kind of salvation or some kind of hope in a way that's other than through God. What one thing can you eliminate in that this week so that you can make room in your heart for Advent hope, the hope that comes from God? Whatever that looks like. So if, if it's reading newspapers, then it's the reminder that, you know what, my hope is not in political leaders. That's not where my hope comes from. If it's in all those Instagrams that we post, it's my hope is not in the number of likes and shares that I get because my hope is not in my popularity or my social status. If it's payday and the paycheck comes from payroll, you remind yourself my hope is not in the money that I receive, not in my economic security, not in my accumulation of wealth. Pick one thing that competes for your hope to eliminate that way. Now then, it's not like we get rid of all these things out of our world. We know that we need jobs with paychecks. We know that we need relationships and social connection. We know that we need order and government in our society. But those things are not where our hope is pointed. So how can you this week eliminate that as a piece of hope in your life to make room in your heart. Then, how do you fill that place with a hope that comes from God? What does that look like? Or what does it look like to take your heart then and fill it with an Advent hope that comes from God? Let me suggest this, that, that we fill our hearts with a hope that comes from God when we fill our hearts with the kinds of things that go along with that hope. And we see that in this passage today, don't we? We see that in these words of Isaiah 11, that he gives us a picture of hope for a Savior that is centered around the character of who Jesus is. You remember that, that character of justice, of righteousness, of faithfulness, that when I make room in my heart to find expressions in the world I live in that echo that righteousness, that faithfulness, that justice, that I make room in my heart for that hope when I lean into those expressions. We see in these words of Isaiah a revelation of the salvation that God brings, a world that beyond our imagination, where we are free of violence and abuse and corruption, I make room in my heart for that kind of hope when I make room for expressions of that kind of life of peace and harmony instead of, of abuse and corruption, that we then live into the hope of Advent when we make room in our hearts for that hope to live in us. This hope is a gift. 
a gift that comes to us from God, a gift that reminds us at Advent that this gift is for you. Yes, it is for you. God loves you enough that he gives you this hope of a Savior and a salvation for a new world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you for the hope that you give us. And Lord, we confess that there have been times and places in our world where we have misplaced that hope in places where it does not belong. And so, Lord, forgive us when we do that. Show us once again how your hope comes to us in ways that open a whole new world, that remind us of who you are, how you've come to us. And Lord, may you then, through a work of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to make room for that hope in our lives today. Lord, we long for your coming to fill us, to fill our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.